Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. In today's episode, we're going to wade into the world of video game music. Video games are a huge part of our global culture, ranging from apps on our mobile devices to people connecting online to play together, gamers streaming as they play, and other people watching them as they play, all the way to professional esports leagues. In fact, in the year 2020, the worldwide esports audience grew to 435.9 million spectators, and then in 2021, it grew to 474 million. The video gaming industry was estimated to be worth 159.3 billion, with a B, dollars in the year 2020, and is estimated to grow to be worth $268 billion by 2025. And music and sound design is an important part of the gaming experience. And today we'll be talking with Matt Kenyon, composer, arranger, and self-proclaimed VGM geek extraordinaire. Matt is the author of ComposerCode.com and the host of the podcast Composer Code. He agreed to chat with me today about video game music and where composers and musicians can find a place in and navigate their way around this growing industry. Please welcome Matt Kenyon to our show today. Great to be with you, Christine. This is fun. Good. I'm glad that you're here. Um, Can you first off explain what a VGM geek extraordinaire is? Sure, absolutely. So VGM is just video game music. And uh, a geek, a VGM geek is just someone who's really into video game music and enthusiast of video game music. You know, I grew up listening to it. It was the first sort of uh, recalled memory I have of a song was listening to the Sonic One soundtrack when I was four years old and listening to those compositions, you know, definitely put an indelible impact on me. And so even before I was composing video game music, I was just really into it, really fascinated by it, by the music theory and the arrangement and the the sort of the culture behind it. And uh, yeah, I'm just a huge fan of the medium. So that's kind of what that what that means. Well, and you're not alone. There is a huge, huge audience for video game music. My own kids are always, always asking. They're always finding it and wanting to play it on their instruments. And it's such a huge part of our culture. So you are a video game composer right now and an enthusiast, but you also have a background in music as well. You play a few instruments. Yes, absolutely. So I actually uh, got started playing um, bass guitar. I was born in the panhandle of Florida and a lot of my family lived there. They played a lot of bluegrass music. So I was introduced to like country and bluegrass music. And that's kind of where I started. And I started playing acoustic guitar, bass, things like that, playing in bands. Uh, So I had that background of sort of performing, but also knowing some of the theory behind, you know, songwriting and composition. But from more of a folk singer songwriter, um, you know, indie perspective, rock and roll. And uh, it wasn't until later in my adult life, honestly, that I I started listening to video game soundtracks in the background on at my day job as a way to focus and concentrate because we had this open office. And I was sort of re I kind of just got this re reinspiration or revitalization of of my love for these these old retro soundtracks. And then I started digging deeper and I found podcasts and communities and people who are still active today in making this kind of music. And I just got really excited. So I started uh, uh, 
basically making my own music, composing my own music, kind of dabbling in that space, and also started the podcast, Composer Code, where I interviewed lots of game composers, which was just a ton of fun. Made some lifelong friends doing that. And um, so that was kind of my, my entryway. But yeah, I definitely didn't start. I kind of came from an, from, a, from an interesting place. I wasn't classically trained or anything like that. I was a self-taught musician. Just kind of came in from that angle. And it's kind of, it's informed my style and, and uh, the way I look at music, but it's been a lot of fun to take that influence and apply it to video game music. Um, so that's kind of how I got into the space. Well, yeah. And that's what I love about video game music is that there's plenty of space for lots of genres into video game music. And it also gives yeah. you somewhat of a unique sound to your own music when you have a different background than maybe some of the other composers do. No, absolutely. And and video game music is interesting because it's not so much a genre as it is a medium. And video game music is really fun because it doesn't limit you to one style. There are there are epic orchestral uh, style soundtracks that that play on a lot of some of the uh, the romantic classical tropes of of classical music. There's um, you know bluegrass style video game music. There's electronica video game music. There's uh, almost like hip hop or rap influenced video game music. So there's so many different genres. There's so many di- different paths you can take. And so I love that about the medium is uh, it's 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 instrumental, which not a lot of people like instrumental music. So it's a fun gateway into instrumental music. Most you know, most of my friends, most of the people I hung out with didn't really like instrumental music except for video game music, you know. So it's a fun gateway to get into those genres. You might discover that you like these genres when you when you formerly thought you didn't um, because video game music introduces you to them, such as jazz. For me, I wasn't a jazz guy until I started listening to video game music and saw the jazz influence and I started getting really deep into jazz. So it's a lot of fun because it's it encompasses so many different genres that if you're someone like me who's kind of got this, this uh, you want to you want to basically dabble in all these different styles it's a really fun vehicle to do that Mm -hmm. and you actually have some videos and some episodes where you do dive into the theory behind different scores yes was there any that was surprising to you that you thought one way and then when you dove into it a little bit you like learned something that you weren't expecting well i think the thing that uh consistently that i would always see is in the difference between Eastern video game music like that made in in Japan right. and, and American video game music uh, because Japanese video game composers love American jazz more than Americans do, oh, really? weirdly enough. <laughs> so if you go and you look at um, Japanese video game music, you see lots of two, five, one chord progressions. You see lots of extensions and tritone substitutions and things like that. Whereas if you look in more American style uh, video game soundtracks, like big name, triple A American style soundtracks, you're going to see more things that are that are derivative of pop music and maybe like film scores mm-hmm. and, and epic orchestral film scores. So that was very interesting to me is just to see how much of jazz has influenced the, the video game soundtracks that I grew up with, like the Marios and the Sonics and the Zeldas, because there's tons of jazz influence there. And you kind of don't really notice it until you dive deep into the theory. Um, but that, as well as just talking to my friend 8-Bit Music Theory, who runs the channel 8-Bit Music Theory, he's one of the first people I interviewed, and just diving into his channel and just looking at the insights that he uncovers. He's a professionally trained uh, jazz 
a drummer. And so he has a lot of uh, jazz chops and theory chops. And so he goes into these soundtracks and sort of uncovers these gems that really just blow your mind. And so that's been a lot of fun just watching his channel. But going in and transcribing tunes has also just revealed a lot of those those tropes and cliches that are common in video game music that might uh, be delineated from the American video game music to the Japanese video game music. So I always found that very interesting. So which of those styles more, the Eastern or the Western, what happens in your in your compositions? Yeah, I tend to be uh, very much more heavily influenced by Eastern uh, Japanese mm-hmm. styles. I mean, my favorite uh, composers are Koji Kondo, are um, Yasunori Matsuda, the, he did the Chrono Trigger series, um, he, um, uh, Kazumi Tataka, who did the Animal Crossing and all the Wii music, like the Wii Shop and, and things like that. Yeah. These guys are the ones that you know I look to and I constantly come back to and I just draw a lot of my own influence from. Heavy emphasis on on really, really catchy melodies, heavy emphasis on you know interesting harmonies that kind of go outside the box. And that that's the kind of stuff that that really inspires me and what I tend to base my compositions off of. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what a lot of people end up remembering. I teach quite a few students and a lot of them video game music is what actually brings them to wanting to learn how to play an instrument. And so much of it just goes back to, you know, to Sonic and Zelda. Oh my goodness. So many people want to play Zelda <laughs> I music bet. I bet. and just all of those different things. And most of the time you're right. It's because of the catchy tunes. It's things that they remember. Mm-hmm. It's things that, you know, bring back all these memories from, from childhood. So that's where your inspiration comes. What's the actual workflow? How do these ideas go from your head into a video game? Yeah, so that's that is a that's a pretty complicated question and it depends on what kind of game you are writing or what kind of game you're writing for or what your goals are in general. So there's a there's a subset of people that just write video game music for fun. Like it's just you just write it with no sort of desire or end goal of it ever even ending up in a game. You just put it online and uh, and it's just sort of like a style that they like to write in. And people write the, make these compilation albums and there's a big community around uh, chiptune is what it's called. It's basically um, one of the one of the subgenres of essentially emulating the old sound chips of things like the NES and the Commodore 64 and the Super Nintendo. And there's these whole communities of people that create these rich, amazing albums of chiptunes that really have no no uh, end goal of being in a video game. So there's that there's those people on in one category. And then in the second category, there's folks like me who pretty much just do composition as a side hustle. And on the side, I, I haven't really I'm not a full time composer, but I do enjoy and I do it on the side. And I like because I love working with indie game developers. That's like right. where my heart's at. I love indie game developers. They're often on a shoestring budget, but they often are such visionaries. And I just I love working with those guys. Those are like those are my peeps. So with indie game developers, typically the way it works or the way it's worked for me is I'll be given some artwork or a brief of some kind and it'll say, okay, this is a, I'll just give you an example. So my first contract was Siberian, the time traveling warrior as the first full game soundtrack that I ever got. And it was, um, they wanted a 16 bit side scrolling platformer, similar to Sonic the Hedgehog, um, Gunstar Heroes, a bunch of old. And I was like, dude, this is perfect. This is like right up my alley. Like I would almost pay them to be able to compose for this. And because it was just (laughs) such a fun, such a fun thing, you know, such a fun experience. So they'll give me some artwork and they'll say, okay, you know, we want 16 bit. We know that. I'm like, okay. So I already have sort of the framework in my mind. It's going to be a 16 bit style uh, composition. 
And then they would send me things like um, reference tracks, which are very important. I always encourage any composer, get reference tracks because when your client is saying, hey, I want this to be intense, you don't really know what that means. Like, But if they give you a reference track and you say, oh, I want it to sound like this, I want it to sound like you know, this part at 34 seconds when the bass does this, you know, that's much more actionable and it's going to save you a lot of headaches when you're composing this demo and then you send it over and they're like, oh, that's not at all what I wanted. Right. So I, I would get reference tracks. And then what I would do is when I interviewed Tom Salta on my podcast, he called this the R&D period, which I love is, is that's kind of what I've always done, but he kind of put a name to it, which is I just let these tracks marinate in my head. I listen to them, uh, you know, on the on my commute. I listen to them when I'm sitting at my desk, and I just sort of let the the ethos of these tracks just kind of permeate my creative mind. And and next thing I know, I I start to come up with melodies and bass lines and all of these things. And then what I'll go is I'll even do a step further, like I did with Siberian. Well, I'll actually transcribe the songs. And so if I really want to understand what's going on under the hood, I'll actually go into MuseScore, which is my notation app of choice, and and just start transcribing these tunes. I'll just try to Mm -hmm. understand, okay, what's the melody doing? What's the harmony doing? How is that contributing to the emotion of the track? And then the next thing I'll do is I'll usually fire up uh, my DAW, which I use Reaper, and I will start, um, I'll basically start just jotting down some ideas and I'll try to come up with a scratch track, which is basically just the form and the structure of the track are complete. Um, it's not, there's no instruments added. It's just one instrument, but it's just like a piano, for example, doing the bass line with the left hand and the, the melody and the harmony with the right hand and just getting that down to where, okay, here's the form and the structure of the piece. And that's the horizontal arrangement. Right. So now I'm fleshing it out with the vertical arrangement. So I'm adding instruments and layers and things like that. You know, I send it over and they say, yes, this is great. So then we start talking about how do we want to implement this? So there's a, in, into the into the game once it's approved. So there's a few ways to to implement video game music. If you're just doing looping video game music, it's very simple. You just send the stems over, which is just the 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 stereo tracks that have been exported from your software. You just send those over. They put them into their game engine. They say at the beginning of the level, start the loop and just keep looping and looping and looping and looping until the the, the person finishes the, the level. And, uh, and of course, writing looping music is a, is a whole challenge in and of itself because you you run that you run that balance of it being catchy, but also trying not to sound too annoying. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you you know, a lot of ending on dominant chords. So it's like a seamless transition from a five to one, that sort of thing. That's kind of an old trick that pretty much everybody uses. And um, so that's the looping. Now for the for the more complicated like AAA games where there's what they call adaptive music. So the music is actually changing based on what's happening on the screen. So you might have a low drone going on and throughout the entire exploration phase. Mm-hmm. And then you encounter an enemy. And so then that drone continues, but now you have this added layer of like a a percussion beat or a drum or or a bass or something that's hyping up the energy. And then maybe the enemy is defeated or you kill the enemy and it goes back to that drone. You know, so Mm -hmm. that's an example of vertical layering. So -hmm. in that case, you would just send the developer all of your your tracks and they usually use a piece of software called middleware, which is a bridge between the game engine 
and the actual assets of the of the, the actual just raw stems, the assets of the of the music. So they would go in and they would program those into the middleware and basically trigger and 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 have it talk to the game engine and trigger all these variables for okay, when you're in the exploration phase, you start this track. You know, when you fight an enemy, you add this track on top and this track on top. When you kill the enemy, this track goes away. And so you can program all that in the middleware. It's a lot easier than a game engine. Mm-hmm. And then you can just export all of that and and upload it right into your game engine and it, and it works that way. So that's kind of how adaptive music works. And that's pretty much the whole workflow. And what's usually the turnaround time from the time that you get those demo tracks to when you give them all of the finalized assets? Yeah, that's a it, that depends on if you're working with a studio with like, you know, deadlines and producers and things like that. Typically, um, what I've heard is the on average, you know, for any given game composer, the turnaround is going to be much, much longer than like film or TV, for example. Right. Film or TV is just like, no, I need this cue by tomorrow. That's very standard in film and and TV with, Mm -hmm. with, with video game music. It's not the same at all. It's usually much longer. There's usually much longer of a, of a, a lead time for that. It could be anywhere from, you know, like you, you give them the demos and then it could be anywhere from maybe another week to two weeks before it just depends on how much time you have to mix and master and the revision cycle. Some, some developers are, are just very difficult to please. And so, you know, they just, you keep going back and forth and they're like, eh, it's not quite there. It's not quite there. It's not quite there. You know, that sort of thing. But fr- from the time they say stamp of approval, this is great. to the time you actually get it like mixed and sent out to them. I mean, you could do that probably in a few days. Yeah. Yeah, but that also goes to show how important communication is and developing a good working relationship with the developers. 100%. Now, where are you meeting these developers you're working with? Yeah, that's a great question. So the cool thing about video game music is it's not like film and TV where there's like mm-hmm. a, um, a geographical hub like L.A. and New York. It would probably help to live in L.A. and New York. Um, although it's tough if you're, if you're trying to make it as a composer, it's expensive and you know, that might be, that might be really hard. Um, but, uh, the cool thing about video game music is that it's basically completely democratized through the internet. So, you know, indie game developers and game composers are really used to linking up digitally and not ever really been really meeting in person. The number one thing for me is just, I just started getting immersed into the community and I just started making friends and trying to add value wherever I could. And um, I got to know a good friend of mine who's still a friend, uh, Stephen Malin. He's a fellow game composer. And uh, we we worked together on a couple things. I interviewed him for my podcast and then we kept in contact. And he was like, hey, would you would you want to basically work for me as a composer assistant? So you do some stuff for me. You basically do some some uh, some grunt work while he does some of the, the, mm-hmm. the high level composing that he's really good at. And so I was like, yeah, I'd love to because I get to see kind of a peek behind the curtain of what all goes into the life of a composer. So he sent me some stuff and I worked with him for a couple months and it was a great experience. And then one day he was just like, hey, man, um, I got this inquiry from this uh, this game developer and, uh, you know, I'm just slammed right now. And I said, I know a guy who's who's good. And, uh, you know, I said, I sent him your info and just let me know if you want to do it. And that was Siberian. And so that was how I got hooked up with them. And then they also gave me a repeat repeat uh commission in the next one gun guy which was the next uh commission for that um and so that was just really cool and it really all happened because i knew a guy 
because I knew a composer who trusted me and was then willing to relinquish some, some, you know, some, uh, one of his clients to me when he was full. So, uh, I think that's, that was it really. It was just building relationships wherever I went. Like you can go to meetups, which is really good. And I think now in 2021, things are kind of getting back to normal. And so I'm encouraged to see like meetups happening again. If you have game meetups in your area, definitely go to developer meetups. Um, if you can go to conferences like MAGFest or even uh, Game Developers Conference, GDC, those are huge places to go. And there's even like opportunities to network there that are like built into the conference. Um, it's expensive, but it's a good investment, I think, for, for meeting people. And, and then just like joining forums and Facebook groups and just adding as much value as possible. For me, I had the podcast, which was just sort of this natural way mm-hmm. to make friends with these people, you know, and, and make friends and, and meet really, really cool people. And just I just enjoyed mm-hmm. talking to them because I just thought they were super interesting. And that just sort of led to these opportunities totally inconsequentially. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't seeking out, seeking these opportunities out or anything like that. It just sort of happened that way. And uh, so that was, that was big. So building, building relationships, networking wherever possible online and offline and conferences and meetups and forums and Facebook groups, and then just adding value uh, wherever you can um, was, was really how that all happened in my, in my scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And so then after you do all the networking and then you do add value and you do a great job and then the the developers love you. Um, As far as compensation goes, I'm sure there's a big difference between indie developers and then the big companies. Like, how is it that you navigate your fees and getting paid and all of that? Yeah, this is this is huge. This is a huge topic. And it's um, we could get really philosophical with this and go all the way back to like monetizing art and and just the value of art and things like that. But it's tough. It's really tough out there. Um, if for anyone who's listening, who's interested in, in looking at some hard industry data on, on compensation and things like that, go to gamesoundcon.com. There is a Brian Schmidt and, and the guys over there did a study, a survey. Uh, they do it every year of game composers and game audio professionals. And it's basically looking at how much you're paid, how much you charge, all these really critical metrics. And they found that the average price for per minute of music. So if I'm delivering a minute of music to you is going to be two, two, uh, two fees, hundred dollars and a thousand dollars. Those are the two most common price points. Hundred dollars would obviously be more on the indie side of things. There Mm -hmm. are people out there that, that that's not sustainable for them. They need more, they need more income. They need more money. And so for them, I would, I would recommend diversifying your, your income portfolio, creating multiple streams of income. But anyway, back to the question. So I think it's, um, it really goes back to the fact that when you're working with indie developers, you need to consider the fact that they also don't have a lot of cash flow. Part of the democratization of indie games that everybody can make an indie game is that Everybody can make an indie game, even people who are living in their basement in their or in their in their mom's basement with a zero, you know, zero dollar budget. You know, I talked to Jason Graves and he's the composer of Dead Space. And he's one of the one of the few people who really is just a full time triple A video game composer. Like he has absolutely made it in every sense of the word. And when he says, you know, when you talk about, you know, getting compensated in video game music, it's one of those things, if you want to be a video game composer, it really is like a, just a slog. I mean, it's a slog to get there. I mean, it's kind of like becoming an actor or a comedian and, you know, it's very competitive. It's very appealing. And there's probably, you know, a couple thousand people on the planet 
who can do it so well to make like a full-time living. And um, I realize that this is very disillusioning and, you know, it's, it can be a little discouraging, but I think it's important that people realize that it's possible, but you're just going to have to hustle a lot if you want to make it a full-time living. Because when it comes to compensation, most indie game developers just do not have the means to do it. It's not the fact that they don't value audio. It's not the fact, you know, sometimes it's that, but for the most part, it's that they're just on a shoestring budget. And, uh, and so you have to find a way to sort of uh, diversify your income. Mm-hmm. Now, how does someone go about diversifying their income? Yes, that's a great question. So someone I would study is, again, my friend, Stephen Malin. He's a, an, a great exemplar of this. Basically, w- what he did was so smart is he essentially took his skill of composing video game music. He turned it into a commodity in several different ways. So the first thing he did was he created a course on how to compose video game music. And it's one of the top courses, two courses actually on Udemy. Then he wrote a book on how to be like a family first composer, where basically you don't put your family ahead of your, your, Mm. um, you know, your career goals and you have work-life balance and things like that. So he wrote a book. Then he did video game music packs, which are music packs are essentially these packs that developers can buy for a very Mm. cheap price without hiring a game composer and put into their game. And then it's a great entryway because not only do you get to practice your skills, but you also can basically say, hey, this music pack was amazing. So once we get more funding for game number two, who are we going to hire? Well, of course, we're going to hire the guy that we bought the music pack from. So he, he sells a lot of music packs, so he gets some recurring revenue from that. Um, he does he, he, he does some like podcast audio and he does some film and TV audio that he's getting recurring uh, revenue from as well. So basically what he's done is over the course of several years, he's like, how can I take this skill set of, of composing for media and turn it into like six different things that are now basically generating me income so that when I have slow months when I'm composing and I, and I maybe don't have a, a big client you know, I can still pay my bills and support my family, that kind of thing. So it's hard to do and it takes time to get there, um, but it's absolutely possible. There are lots of composers doing it. And the, the you know, Steven is one of the ones that I think is just doing it super well. Yeah. Now those game packs, I wonder, because with other types of composing, you know, you can always do that licensing, the licensing streaming, and you can pay a little licensing fee and then bring it into your project. I wonder if there are so many of those, does the value of those game packs decrease? And as more people do that, does that become a less valuable income stream for someone? I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just with, you know, basic economics for sure. Anytime the, the supply goes up, the demand's going to go down and, and the cost as well and the value, um, to everyone basically. But well, well, number one, people still aren't doing it. It's crazy. When I, when, um, when I go on these game music packs, websites like itch.io and the unity asset store, I see so much opportunity for people to come in and, and write, you know, game music in different genres and stuff. And, and I've gotten people email me saying, the game music packs themselves did not necessarily change my life financially, but they introduced me to people and they opened the door for opportunities that would have never been possible. I had a friend who, who listened to the podcast email me because I was talking about game music packs and he said, I feel like now I used to be the one hounding the game developers. Now they're coming after me. 
because of my game music back. So it almost works as a, as not only a form of income, but as a form of advertisement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like anything, you know, the, the cream of the crop is always going to, is always going to rise to the top. So if you have a really good product on these sites and you're just a, a really good composer, you've worked on your craft, you know, you're going to get attention from, from people. You're going to get noticed and people are going to pursue you. And even if you don't, you know, make bank off of these sales on these websites, which you, you probably won't, it introduces you and opens the door to new opportunities. So that's, I think, probably the real value. Right. So it's more like building up a portfolio so that people can see it and see what you're capable of doing. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost okay. like a portfolio you can charge for, which is sort of a, the double benefit of it. <laughs> I don't think that there's going to ever be a shortage of video game developers or video games that need music. Right. This is a little off topic, but I think it's really interesting how you're talking about a lot of the indie game developers are liking some of the old sounds, like the 16-bit sounds. Yeah. Now that's to me, seems like a completely different ball game than sitting at a piano. I mean, I guess you start at the piano, but looking at the interface, that looks very, very different to me than just, you know, with staff paper. Can you explain just a tiny bit about that? Because I'm just so intrigued by how that all works. Yeah, absolutely. So the um, usually the reason that these indie game developers are favoring these 16-bit well there's two reasons i think that they favor the 16-bit and 8-bit sort of soundtrack or this this palette number one is just nostalgia a lot of these guys that are and and gals that are making these games grew up in the 90s like me i was born in 90 and so i grew up with these with these tunes and and uh and so it's just it, it calls back to a to a to a golden era of of you know video game music and and two is a lot of the aesthetic of these games are pixel is pixel art. Uh, and there's, mm-hmm. there's a good reason for that. And it's because pixel art is a lot easier to develop when you're a one or two person development team. You know, you, it, you can't make grand theft auto five when you're by yourself, you just can't, you can't yeah. make it. I mean, it's, it's a lot harder to make a fully immersive 3d game, you know, that might have an epic orchestral score, uh, than, um, you know, if you, and then if you're a, a solo development team, now that said, there's always caveats like Ori, Ori in the Blind Forest and um, Ori in the Will of the Wisps is an indie game. It's got beautiful 2D animation and an incredible, gorgeous yeah. orchestral score. That um, has to be my favorite one right there. Oh, I it, love that one. It is beautiful. I mean, and I, mm-hmm. I interviewed um, Eric uh, Buckles, who did the uh, basically all of the orchestration. So, you know, he would mm-hmm. receive all the MIDI and it was his job to essentially prepare it for players. And we talked all about mm-hmm. that. And that was fascinating. But just a gorgeous, just a gorgeous, you know, soundtrack all and game all around. But that that's definitely the exception, because I would say Ori is has moved up from just the standard indie game to something probably more substantial just because it, it because of its you know popularity and cultural relevance. But so when it comes to composing with 8-bit and 16-bit, really the fun thing about that is the, the limitations. So with mm-hmm. 8-bit sound, uh, 8-bit uh, uh, like NES style sound chips, um, you really only had three melodic channels at any given time. Um, and so you had the, the triangle channel, which is typically played by the bass. Then you had the... Um, 
two square wave channels, which one would usually take the melody and another would take a harmony voice. You also had a DPCM sample channel, which you could put samples in like, you know, the bongos from Super Mario 3 and stuff like that. Very, 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 Mm -hmm. very compressed, super low quality samples. So most people just worked with those three. Like the the original Mario Bros. Overworld theme, Super Mario Overworld theme was written with just three channels. So if the music theory uh, nerds among you, the ones listening now will realize, oh, well, if you only have three voices, how the heck do you play four note chords? And that's where things started to get interesting because they were working under these intense constraints. So you know that, you know, in the music theory, you have the first, the third, the fifth, and the seventh in like a major seven chord or whatever. Well, the first, the, the first is essential. The third defines the uh, the quality of the chord. The fifth just reinforces the first. So you can drop right. that. So that's what they would do. So they would basically drop the fifth of these chords and just have the one, three, seven. So they had to make all these creative decisions. Sometimes they would arpeggiate chords. And so the real fun comes in when you have to work under these limitations. So a lot of times they would utilize a lot of like contrapuntal uh, movements because they couldn't really, they couldn't really play like block chords, you know, like, right. like, you know, and mm-hmm. then like you play a chord with your hand and uh, with left hand and then a melody with your right hand, like you do on a piano. So they kind of had to be like, okay, well, how can we be creative with these moving voices to make it sound like there's actual movement happening in the piece. And so when it came to the workflow for composing for eight bit music, uh, for me was very much like starting on the staff paper because I wanted to write it like I would write a Bach cantata or that I would write something that with a lot of counterpoint because I want to see where all the voices are going and leading and that sort of thing. And then you put it into a tracker. Now a tracker is crazy because it is basically, it looks like a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. It's a giant thing, spreadsheet looking application. They're free. You can download them for free, but it basically replicates the original limitations of eight bit and 16 bit uh, game systems. So you actually have to go in and be like, program in an A, scroll down to the next few cells, program in a B, that sort of thing. And it's, uh, I composed the entire Siberian soundtrack in a tracker and it sounds like just hell on wheels. Like why would anyone ever want to do this? (laughs) But, um, but honestly it was like by the end of the first song, I was just as fast in the tracker than I was, uh, you know, working in my DAW oh, okay. with like samples or virtual instruments. So, so that was kind of my workflow for the for the eight and sixteen bit wow. sign uh, contexts. Okay, so it's not not as crazy as it looked. I watched one of your videos when you were doing a composition that way, and I just was like, "Is this even music? What on earth?" Is <laughs> not know. that it didn't sound it sounded great, but it was just Thank like you. the way that you were plugging it in. I, I was I just was completely lost as to what you're doing. Yeah, it looks like I'm I got like a MS DOS right. spreadsheet exactly. going on there. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that's just one way to do it. I mean, a lot of people do just do it right into their DAW with with sounds and sound oh, okay. fonts and things like that, and they don't actually go through a tracker. But you know. The if you want to be as authentic as possible in replicating right. the original hardware, which I'm such a nerd for that stuff, I was like, I got to do it in a tracker. I did it in the <laughs> tracker, and it was it was really fun. I mean, it was really fun. I feel like I compose differently in a tracker right. than I do on staff paper or in a MuseScore or even in a DAW. I'm more meticulous. I'm more careful. It's just it's just a different way. Right. So there's a little bit different technique, but it's it's still music for sure.
Well, I really appreciate you coming and speaking with me today. Is there any last minute tips that you would give someone who wants to be where you are and wants to be a video game composer? Yeah, for sure. I would say, and and I'm, I'm, I don't mean this to be a shameless plug, but I just, I mean it because I want, if people want to go deeper, check out my podcast, Composer Code. And, you know, not because it's anything that I've created, but because the wisdom of these people that I've interviewed is incredible. I mean, I have like 24 hours of episodes. And if you listen to episode one, all the way to the final episode, you're going to learn so much from these people. I mean, these are people that are far more successful than I ever will be in game audio far deeper into this industry and have so much experience. And it is just such a joy to learn from them. And so whether you want to learn about the actual craft or, uh, you know, how to talk to people and network or how to work with developers or work-life balance. All of those things are covered uh, throughout the guests on the podcast. So definitely check that out. It's totally free, always will be free, you know, and it's a, it's just a great resource and it's, it's a lot of fun. So I would check that out. And um, the other thing is uh, just, just don't be a jerk. You know, that's what Chris, that's what, that's what Chris Madigan told me, you know, he, he used more colorful language, but he basically said, the composer of Cuphead, I was like, you know, how do you get gigs? How do you meet people? How do you network? He's just like, just don't be a jerk. So that's a first step. And I think it's advice, you know, we all need to remind ourselves about, especially in the creative world. Um, so yeah, check out the podcast and, uh, and uh, there's lots of wisdom there. Absolutely. I will put a link to your podcast in our show notes so that everyone will be able to find it really easily. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And thank you so much for being here. I truly appreciate it. It was so fun to talk with you. Yeah, this is a joy. I mean, I've I've never been asked to do an interview. It's my very first. So it's fun to be on the other side of the microphone. So uh, I love what you're doing. I'm excited to listen to this. And uh, thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Anytime. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. Today's episode was hosted by me, Christine Smith, and produced by Russ Wilkes. A big thanks to my guest today, Matt Kenyon, video game music composer and host of the podcast Composer Code. Throughout our episode today, you've been able to hear some of Matt's music, including the titles Siberian Level 3, Orb's Main Theme, and Dreamy Retro Tune. You can listen to Matt's podcast, Composer Code, wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you'd like to dive deeper into the world of VGM composing, take a listen or check out his blog, ComposerCode.com. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic or just music in general, share this episode with them or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any topics that you'd like to hear being discussed or questions about music or musician life that you'd like answered, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much.